Hi everyone, from Impact Alpha Media, this is Returns on Investment, a show about the impact investing marketplace. Live on tape from New York, I'm Brian Walsh, head of impact from the financial technology company LiquidNet. Joining me here in New York is Imogen Rose Smith, a senior writer with Institutional Investor Magazine. Hello, Imogen. Hi, Brian. And joining us by the magic of podcast technology from the Bay Area in California is David Bank, who's editor-in-chief of Impact Alpha. Hi, David. Hi, Brian. On today's show, we're going to talk about the road to Marrakesh and COP22. Now, COP22 stands for the convening of parties. This is the group of United Nations countries who are trying to address climate change. At COP21 last year, we had the Paris Agreement, which bound national governments to come up with plans to deal with greenhouse gas emissions, adaption, and finance. 191 countries have signed that treaty, which is pretty astounding, and so far, 62 have ratified it, including the US, China, and India. Imogen, what can we expect out of Marrakesh, and why should investors care about COP22? Those are both excellent questions, Brian. Thank you. Um, I think we really don't know what to expect. Going into Paris, there was a real expectation that there would be some kind of agreement. Copenhagen, which was the one previous to that, had been a huge disappointment. There was a real feeling that some kind of agreement needed to be reached, and this was sort of the now-or-never moment. And they got that. You know, there's criticism that the, the, the agreements were non-binding, but at least there was, you know, directionally things were moving in the right direction. Marrakesh, after sort of the excitement of Paris, there's a real unknown. And there's, you know, there's a lot of pressure. I think, you know, the government of Morocco, the king of Morocco is very passionate about combating climate change. They really want to do something. And I think there's a lot, they, they, they're feeling a lot of pressure to make Marrakesh meaningful. And that's actually where investors come in, because one of the things that you've seen over the last couple of COPs is this recognition on the part of the conveners, of the sort of the NGOs and the other groups that tend to be a part of this conversation, that they need to bring capital markets into the mix. That, especially when you think about the political stasis that's happening in somewhere like the US, government action alone, while essential, is not going to be the only thing that gets this done. And we need capital markets participants, both in terms of investors, allocators, money managers, banks, so on and so forth. So one of the things I think you're going to see in Morocco is a real commitment to figuring out how do we use the tools of capital markets to achieve some of the major transitions that we need to happen. Well, David, COP22 is a gathering of governments. But as Imogen just laid out there, there is a huge capital gap in the private markets here. So what do you see as the main gap that the market might be able to fill? Well, Brian, there's really two gaps and it's worth separating them out. One is a kind of early stage investment, venture type uh, investment perhaps for climate innovation. And for these are technology breakthroughs that will make a difference, uh, certainly make a difference in the future, say, you know, 10, 15, 20 years from now as the world needs to get to, frankly, a sort of zero carbon economy. And folks like Bill Gates and the Breakthrough Energy Coalition have been targeting that. There's also a much more more about that actually real quick, the, the Breakthrough Energy Coalition. The Breakthrough Energy Coalition is a collection of mostly billionaires that came together around COP21 in Paris last year and committed some number, I think it was about $22 billion, to help with the research and development for these kind of breakthroughs. And there was partly a commitment to developing countries and others that there would be adequate 
uh, capital for that kind of energy research, which they didn't have the wherewithal to do necessarily on their own. And that's all very important. And, and, you know, I think it's true that to get to the true zero carbon economy of the future, that we'll need technologies that we don't now have. The other part, though, is a much more immediate and, uh, and bigger gap, although at some level easier to fill, I think, which is just the immediate deployment of very well-known technologies, whether it's solar panels or wind tur turbines or other th sorts of things, and getting those things to scale. And there's been quite a lot, you know, you'll look at the charts of renewable deployments and, you know, something like 60 to 70 percent of all new electricity generating capacity is renewables now. Um, so those trends are, are, are quite strongly going in the right direction, but it has to be just an order of magnitude faster than we're going. And that means, you know, trillions of dollars of institutional capital at relatively low return rates. I mean, this is not venture style home runs. This is grinding it out with very prosaic project finance to lay down, you know, billions and billions of solar panels and, and lots of wind turbines. So Imogen, we need three forces at least to come together in order to really uh, find the right uh, solutions to climate change. One is the right policy enabling environment, and that's what COP, the COPs uh, can provide, the right kind of regulatory framework that allows the private market to, to, uh, to kind of take over and innovate. Uh, the next we need is sources of capital, so we need investors who are willing to put up the money to invest in these new technologies and these new uh, new or existing strategies for combating and mitigating climate change. And the third is the, the actual projects and deals. So where is the gap here? Is it in the lack of capital or is the gap in enough deal pipeline uh, so, and, to, to, to take in the, the capital? And, and yet, yet again, Brian, you've hit the nail on the head with this question as well. Because you're like <laughs> three for three today. Okay. Um, but that is exactly one of the things that we are going to be discussing in Marrakesh, and I'm actually going out there with a group of people to partially talk about this, because all of those... Wait, while, while you're in Marrakesh, are you going to do any, like, falconry or any kind of... Apparently purpose? there is going to be falconry, and there are going to be camel rides. Really? Camel yes. rides? Yes. Do I, you have to buy tickets for that, or is that just like I, have I camels have, walking around the streets? No, no, I, it has to be organized. You can't just, like, you know, okay. hop on a camel. Uh, will any fine any discussion of climate finance take place? Yes, there will. We're having a weekend-long summit at which we're going to be discussing exactly these issues around climate finance, and and one of the sort of the points underlying this is you have the supply, you have the demand, and you have you know you have the deals, you have the investors, and you have a regulatory framework. So what is the problem? Why can't we bring all of these things together? And it's, you know, there's there's sort of the, the um, hourglass problem. There's a bottleneck in between. And if you can find a better way of bringing the right players and the right stakeholders together, we can move this along. And I think a lot of it is what we've talked about in other arenas, which is the capital stack problem. You have to make sure the right capital is sitting in the right places to fund the right parts of the transactions. So you want, you know, our friends, the institutional investors, for the most part, want to play in the bigger, less risky areas where they are funding high-level infrastructure deals or large infrastructure deals. Where they can make the case for those deals that still adheres to their fiduciary duty. Exactly, and that they're going to do it. And then you need the right, because one of the big problems has been that the money managers want to charge too much fees for what can just be very sort of 
low return, low steady return kind of project. So how do you set that up in the right way? How do you make sure that you have all the right actors at the right point? And then crucially, that each part of the capital flow is talking to one another so you can move an idea from say the VC stage all the way through through to inception if that's the kind of deal it is. Or you can make sure you have the right players in the right place. That's what hasn't happened yet. And no, why I, hasn't it happened? Is it a culture barrier? Is it a language barrier? Is it a just like the, the right kind of bringing the right people? I mean, is it really a convening barrier? Yeah, you know, that's a good question because I think, yes, these you know, you can just go on the climate circuit and like convene every day, right? <laughs> the problem is, is that having the right people in those meetings and bringing in people from, you know, as I say, as I was saying before, you know, we haven't really had the finance guys in these meetings before and it's getting the right finance people, the people, you know, I don't know, like the Capricorn Investor Group guys of this world, the people who really have the ability to put money to work as opposed to sort of like the people who speak about this. So it's identifying the right people to have with the right conversations, and then there's a language barrier, right? In terms of people are talking about like, you know, another big thing that is going to be part of this conversation is adaptation. How do you ensure that you're adapting companies, cities, towns, whatever, to prepare for climate change? If you start talking about this to a room full of investors, they have no idea what you're talking about. So there is a need to sort of find a common language and a common ground. And then the other problem, which is a huge issue, is, is that the capital markets do not accurately recognize the risk of what is happening. And as a result, we're still, even as we're investing record amounts of money in clean energy solutions, we're still investing billions of dollars in high carbon infrastructure solutions. So there's a huge, and, and the, there's a sort of gravitational pull in the way that the markets work that we keep doing this. We're fu funding, you know, we're funding an oil pipeline going up the Hudson Valley. We're funding the pipeline in Dakota. All of that is coming from institutional capital. And it's just happening because, you know, Bank of America has an office with a bunch of guys and they do energy deals, right? So these things keep happening and we have not had a recognition on the part of the capital markets that there needs to be a different way to do business. Now, David, what's your take on whether the feasibility of some true, uh, if you will, regulation innovation, something like a carbon tax, uh, might come come in and actually put a price on carbon that then would spur the, the right level, uh, uh, the alignment of incentives uh, for investors so that they have the, the right incentive to invest in the right kind of uh, approaches to decarbonize their investments. So what, what do you think about the feasibility of, uh, of an approach like that? Well, it's interesting. You know, people talk about climate risk, and there's really two at least levels of climate risk. One is the things people think about, which is, you know, rising sea levels and, you know, wildfires and droughts. And then there's the what the portfolio managers think about is risk of climate regulation, risk of climate policy. And they say, what is the exposure of our portfolio if the world actually got its act together to adopt policies that would keep us to the 2%, uh, sorry, the two degree uh, experiment that we're, we're currently running, um, which is, you know, can the world stay below the two degree increase? And if you, you know, work the math backwards uh, from the uh, oil that's in the ground and the coal that's in the ground and how much can be burned and still stay within that two degree experiment and then what is the actual value of those uh, assets um, on the books and, and all that kind of stuff. This is this whole stranded assets argument. You know, there, there is a considerable risk to their portfolio, not only of rising sea levels, but of actual climate regulation. And so some long-sighted uh, uh, institutional investors, and Imogen knows all these folks, um, 
are saying, well, you know, it, it may not be 100%, and, you know, the world's not going to immediately get its act together and have those policies, but it's certainly more than 0%. And that, in fact, uh, you know, um, as the actual climate risks of rising sea levels and whatnot starts to, to bite, then the chances will be greater that some level of government regulation, whether it's done as price on carbon or various kinds of carbon markets or, or just outright mandates that uh, you can't burn the stuff, um, uh, you know, that you have to take that into account with your long-term uh, investment horizon. And so, you know, some some pension funds have started to gently diversify against that risk. Um, and I think what we're going to see is, you know, whether the market, you know, the market will price that risk and the market will take a big signal, I think, from Prime Marrakesh and other things like that to see whether really we're getting serious about this or whether, you know, we're going to sort of nibble around the edges of the climate of the climate challenge, but not really attack it. Uh, uh, but I don't think, on. I mean, I don't think anyone realistically expects the price of carbon to come out of COP22. And I would disagree with you that I think the fundamental point is the market isn't pricing the risk. That we, like, we know, you know, whatever the political stasis of the US and elsewhere, that, that, that attacks on carbon isn't happening now, we know that 10, 20 years from now, the, the climate mix has to change. So at some point, that risk, that, that change is going to come. And the risk is today. But, but speaking of carbon emitters, we, we in New York have, have an important question for you, David. We want to hear about the new puppy. <laughs> she is a carbon emitter, I, I, I do believe. Um, nobody quite told me what having a new puppy was really all about. We do, you know, we did have a, an infant son, you know, a number of years ago. And I apparently have forgotten what that was about because I signed up to get a new puppy. That's apparent. Uh, well, that's going to do it for this episode <laughs> of Returns on Investment. Thank you, Imogen. Thank you. Thank you, David. Thanks to both of you. I miss you guys. Let's get together soon. <laughs> that sounds good. Well, you've got to come out for High Water Women on Tuesday, October the 18th. High Water Women Impact Symposium in New York. David has to come out and moderate. All our listeners have to buy tickets. Excellent. If you like the show, subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or really wherever you listen to podcasts these days. Probably the app you're listening to right now. Go ahead and subscribe. And uh, if you can, leave us a rating and a comment because it helps other people discover the show. You can also send us an email with any questions or comments or suggestions because we love hearing from you. You can reach us at info at impactalpha.com. For more on the Impact Investing Marketplace, follow us on Twitter at impactalpha and visit us at impactalpha.com. Be sure to sign up for our newsletter to keep in touch while there. Special thanks, as always, to our technical producer, Isaac Silk. Thanks, Isaac. From New York, I'm Brian Walsh. On behalf of David Bank and Imogen Rose-Smith, thanks for listening to Returns on Investment. We look forward to talking with you again soon. <laughs>